Now we're going to continue in our study of the Beatitudes as we'll look this morning, Matthew chapter 5 and the ninth verse, which reads, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's pray for the Lord's blessing on his word this morning. Father, again, we are forever grateful for your living, active word. And as recipients of grace, we again thank you that we have the capacity to understand. And may we this morning have eyes to see, to embrace this glorious truth and what it means for us ultimately in Christ, as well as what it means for us practically in this day-to-day life. within the church of your Son, Jesus Christ. Grant me the ability, Lord, to communicate this truth with clarity and in the power of the Holy Spirit that we would understand our role as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. That we'll understand our responsibility of unity within the body of Christ. Bless our time now, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Now, as I've said, the fundamental nature of the Beatitudes is a new heart, which is the work of the Spirit of God in everyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, beloved, the Beatitudes is a description of salvation and not a prescription in order to gain salvation. In other words, when God does a divine work in the heart of an individual, they come to the place of utter brokenness, poor in spirit. They mourn over their sin and they find comfort in the comforter, Jesus Christ, because they begin to see their sin as God sees it and they understand their desperate need for the Savior. That they can do nothing whatsoever to gain favor in his sight, but realize that they are the product of redeeming love, abounding salvific grace. And once he empties out a sinner by the divine work of God the Holy Spirit, we see that person take on characteristics of their Savior. They become merciful. They begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. They grow in meekness. They become pure in heart. And as we studied, they desire to be pure in heart because ultimately we will not be pure in heart until we enter heaven, until we enter the presence of God. We will not truly be satisfied in righteousness until we enter the presence of the righteous one. So, therefore, the Beatitudes, you see, are both a view from the end that provides for us a future hope, a promise, that these promises, that these characteristics will ultimately be fulfilled when we enter into the presence of our Lord, along with a matter, the matter of Christ's expectation for us here and now. In other words, the Beatitudes ultimately are to be fulfilled in eternity future and are at this present time a sanctifying reality for all those who are in Christ. Now it's been said 
that with each beatitude, another nail is driven into a coffin. Inside the coffin lies the corpse of a false understanding of salvation. The false understanding that says a person can be saved without being changed. Or that a person can inherit eternal life even if his attitudes and actions are like the attitudes and actions of unbelievers. End quote. In other words, the work that God does in a believer is so dramatic and so powerful and it's so at the core of our being that someone who's saved, you can't not change. Because this is the work of God. Now many people look at the Sermon on the Mount, which is, consists of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, as mere suggestions on how to live a better life here and now. Uh, many pagans, for instance, claim that, you know, Jesus was a great teacher. He was a good man, and he has provided for us in this sermon um, an ethical standard that if we adhere to, in the end, we'll find favor in the sight of God. That's not true. Because when we get to verse 20 of chapter 5, Jesus said that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this is a righteousness that far exceeds the external exercise of religious ritual and practice for which the Pharisees of the day were known for. This is an internal transformation that Jesus is talking about here. It transforms the very nature of sinful man. And what Jesus is describing, beloved, is his pathway to heaven. His divine pathway is the supernatural work of God the Holy Spirit in and through those that are his. Every single person who is not saved, whether they realize it or not, are at war with God. And God is at war with them. This pathway in chapter 7, verse 14, Jesus says very few enter in that way. In other words, the gate is very narrow because the gatekeeper is none other than Jesus Christ. The only way of entry. But those outside of Christ being at war with God are enslaved to the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience. And we as believers in Christ have been freed from that slavery. Ephesians chapter 2 reads, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Brought near, verse 13, by the blood of Christ, get this, for he himself is our peace. He is our peace. So then, beloved, as recipients of God's grace, as recipients of his mercy, the maker of peace, Jesus Christ, we are given a ministry. And this is the main point of the sermon this morning. That because we are recipients of the ultimate peacemaker, Jesus Christ, we in turn become little peacemakers. Now, to get a sense of this, we, uh, 
want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning verse 17, where the Apostle Paul, he writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? He is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and, in, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you, says Paul, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We, beloved, not unlike Paul, are agents of reconciliation. Paul is announcing God's peace treaty here through Jesus Christ alone, the ultimate peacemaker. This is Christ's atoning work, the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ placed upon the believer's account that provides peace with God. You are no longer at war with God. You have eternal saving peace with your maker through the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf at Calvary's cross where he bore the wrath providing peace between God and man as the mediator who stands between the Father and those made in his image. So what's being conveyed here, beloved, in Matthew chapter 5 is not peace itself but rather the process of the individuals who bring about this message of peace. Therefore, blessed are the peace what? The peacemakers. Now, before we look into what being a peacemaker is, we want to know, again, what it is not. Because there's probably no portion of Scripture taken out of context or misinterpreted more than the Sermon on the Mount is. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, Matthew. Now, if you were to ask someone to define what it is to be a peacemaker, most of them will answer that it is to become a pacifist. Pacifism. Many people, for instance, such as Gandhi, have used this verse to produce a pacifist movement. But being a peacemaker, beloved, is not pacifism. It is not becoming a non-resistor or some anti-war activist. That's not what it is to be a peacemaker. Now, many who love to quote this verse wouldn't cross the street, unfortunately, to defend a woman who's being attacked. It's peace at all costs, they say. They'll also say we shouldn't intrude into other people's belief systems, as false as they may be. Uh, we shouldn't correct their false ideals because they serve a false God. We need to just make peace at all costs. That is not the case. This term, peacemaker, is referring to one who is an active peace establisher, not, a, not an inactive, peaceful pacifist. These are active people. These are not people who disengage. You know, the kind of people who typically know, win the Nobel Peace Prize. One commentator has said that those deserving of the Nobel Peace Prize in the 20th century, if it was to mean anything at all, should have been Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill. Why? For defeating Hitler. 
a foe who was going, never going to be satisfied. One who needed to be confronted. A threat that had to be met with force. But unfortunately, they weren't viewed as peacemakers. Hitler was a warmonger. We'd all agree with that. He was faced by peacemakers. Warmongers love conflict. Warmongers love contention and dissension and tyranny. And in a political or military sense, the one who goes out against the evil dictator loaded for bear is not a warmonger, but is a peacemaker. Augustine himself said that the purpose of war is what? Peace. Now, in the Christian context, we are a people who are called to seek out peace as we advance the gospel. We don ourselves with the armor of God. We arm ourselves with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are called to endure hardship as a good what? As a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And we therefore are peacemakers who are blessed. We go out to make peace. Now, this is not a subjective kind of peace um, with regard to feeling, you know, like the uh, peace of Philippians 4, the peace that surpasses all understanding. The context of peace here is not a feeling of, of tranquility or stillness or that of calmness, but rather is an objective legal kind of peace where warring parties are restored. Blessed are the peacemaker. So a peacemaker here, beloved, is not referring to a a passively peaceful or a docile kind of person. It's not referring to one who has a peaceful demeanor, but rather an individual who participates in or assists in bringing two warring, struggling parties into a place of reconciliation. That's what it is to be a peacemaker in the biblical sense. So this expression of peace would have been very familiar to the Lord's original audience here on the hills of Galilee. Common expression of that day was the Hebrew shalom, peace be with you. This was a very important part of the Hebrew mindset because it was rooted in the fact that God had promised to establish the nation of Israel with peace. Peace with him as well as their neighbors. That was the promise that God had proclaimed to this uh, people, Israel. So this truth was deeply entrenched within their minds by way of ceremony. Ceremonies by which God himself had established with the nation of Israel. If we were to read through uh, Leviticus, for instance, chapter 3 and chapter 7, we read what God prescribed as a free will peace offering. Okay, now this is, this is what's at the core of becoming a peacemaker. This is what's at the root of understanding the ultimate peacemaker, which is none other than God himself. Now, with this peace offering, the individual would take an animal and offer it on the sacrifice in order to, on the altar in order to make atonement for his sins. And then they would offer a free will or peace offering where they would take the fat or the meat, offer it and burn it unto the Lord in his presence, and then they would hold back a portion. 
And the portion that was held back, they would eat, partake of, in the presence of the Lord. Depicting that things were right between them and God. So in the sacrificial process, this peace offering was the last sacrifice to occur, where the sinner would actually sit down before their God after the terms of peace had been met by way of the atoning sacrifice on the altar. And it was a very visible sign that the worst that could happen would not happen today. For peace has been made with God by way of an atonement. Now, this was the only sacrifice, by the way, that any common person could partake of, partake of in the presence of God um, to ingest. Every other prescribed ceremony that these people participated in was designed to demonstrate the distance between man's sinfulness and the holiness of Almighty God. In other words, it describes their desperate need. In other words, the transcendency of Almighty God separates Their sin, rather, separates them from the transcendent glory of God. This is unapproachable holiness. So this part of the ceremony um, showed that that distance was bridged. The gap had been closed. It was crossed over. And it depicts God's mercy being provided for the sinner. So this is powerful imagery. These Jews... In, 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 in attendance to the preaching of Jesus, would certainly have had this image seared in their minds. A Jew sitting in the temple, eating in the presence of a holy, righteous God. And they weren't being crushed. So the peace that Jesus has in mind here is the peace of reconciliation. And that's what the peace offering symbolized. Reconciliation between God and man by way of this peace offering that was actually able to be eaten in the presence of God. See, God is a God of peace. God is a God of peace and is portrayed here in this free will peace offering where he mercifully provides peace for his people. It could actually be argued that the Bible is God's redeeming story, a redemptive story of the overarching uh, fact that God is making peace with his creation, which he established in peace, that was corrupted because of sin. And over time, he sacrifices his only begotten son, who would come as the prince of peace, to bridge this gap. Now, Colossians 1 helps us understand what this means. Verse 19, which reads, For in him, Jesus that is, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making what? Making peace by the blood of of his cross. So here the free will peace offering is ultimately fulfilled by the prince of peace himself, Jesus Christ. That's what the entire sacrificial system pointed forward to was to Jesus. This is the peace of enemies coming together, two rival parties coming to terms of peace. This represents a restored relationship between two parties that have been separated. The peacemaker 
For unto us a child is born, Isaiah prophesied. Unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace is the Prince of Reconciliation. Peter came preaching in Acts chapter 10, verse 36. He says, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Romans 5, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we, the church, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of what? Hostility. Before God granted you the ability to believe you were at war with God, and yes, he was at war with you, Everyone who is outside of Christ that you or I know, they are at war with God and he is at war with them. That is the hostility that is being referred to here, beloved. So now, as those who are recipients of peace through Jesus Christ, we become his blessed peacemakers. To bring two warring parties together, ambassadors of Christ, agents of reconciliation, Now, our peace, or our peacemaking, that is, includes the transmission or the communication of his gospel of peace. You can't make peace between God and man, can you? No. We point them to the peacemaker as his little peacemakers with the ministry of reconciliation. Now, if you notice, this is the last beatitude that defines the actual characteristics of those who follow Christ. I know as you look at it, you go, wait, this isn't the last beatitude. Well, it's the last beatitude that characterizes God's people. The last or actual last beatitude in verse 10 is the world's reaction to those characteristics. Persecution. This beatitude is last because it is the natural manifestation of those who possess all the previous Beatitudes. In other words, this is a people who are in Christ and you see Christ in them and through them. Proof that these traits don't lie dormant in the closet of our minds. Just to simply, you know, something just to know. But rather, this is an eruption of the heart. This is a volcano of life in Christ that pours forth from God's people always by the power of spirit, his spirit and according to his grace. So when the realities of all the preceding Beatitudes flow out of the believer, they are finally described as being peacemakers of the great peacemaker. Understanding that man's greatest dilemma is that he or she is at war with God, just as we once were. So we desire to see that hostility end. Peacemakers want to see peace be made between God and sinful man. These are the people who who know the joy of forgiveness. They know what it is to have cried out before God as a bankrupt, broken beggar, having received mercy. 
understand abounding salvific grace, the guarantee of eternal life. Those who have received the unconditional grace of his gospel now love to proclaim that truth to lost people. The one who has received comfort in grief over their sin loved to point people to the comforter, Jesus Christ. Because they realized, beloved, that their own attempt at self-righteousness was swallowed up by divine mercy. And all of our attempts to get right with God were swallowed up by the fact that you can't get right with God without Him dispensing His grace, enabling you to believe in His Son, the ultimate peacemaker. So they love to show others the same forgiveness that they have received in Jesus Christ. And they aim to tell others to abandon all their hopeless effort in in self-righteous merit, in surrendering it to him, fleeing to his mercy. So peacemakers, you see, are beneficiaries of peace. They're enlisted in the army, if you will. And they desire to tell their lost fellow man that uh, here's the terms of peace. And these terms of peace, they don't depend on you. They depend upon God alone. It's the gift of God in Christ. That's the message. That's the message of reconciliation. Now, this teaching, of course, was contrary to the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Their self-righteous thinking... uh, you know, caused them to look at a sinner like the woman called in a, caught in adultery and said, Stoner. <laughs> She's deserving of God's wrath. But this is opposite of the thinking that sinners, you know, deserve what they get. Because we, having been, having been provided peace with God, understand what we deserve and that we've been delivered from that which we deserve. No one knows the need for peace like those who have received it. Amen? We are walking, talking, living examples of those who have received the peace of God through Jesus Christ, the peacemaker. We are now his emissaries. Understanding who both parties are. And because we're on this side now, we understand both parties. We understand the moral blind depravity of man, while at the same time, we understand the radiant glory and holiness of Almighty God and that which separates man from God. So we yearn to see sinful man, fallen man, be reconciled to this holy, righteous God. Therefore, 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, Paul said, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Because you see, we know what's coming, don't we? We know what's in store. We know that man cannot enter into eternity and escape the wrath of God. This we know. This we understand. We know that man hasn't the ability to enter into God's presence on his own merit. He needs righteousness outside of himself. He needs merit that is foreign to him. And that is the merit of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. So as his peacemakers, there's a joy here. There is a delight 
as we witness lost sinners come to faith in Jesus Christ, as we see them embrace the Prince of Peace for salvation, we rejoice as little peacemakers. Now, as a peacemaker, you know more times than not the conflict of this message of peace. Okay, We are ambassadors for Christ. We are peacemakers. We take out the ultimate peacemaker's message that there's an opportunity of reconciliation through Jesus Christ alone. The message of ultimate peace. However many times this message of, 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 of peace produces more hostility, doesn't it? Now some people will say, hey man, there's a, there's a contradiction in Scripture. If Jesus is the peacemaker, what about Matthew 10, verse 34? Where Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own, what? Household. Is that a contradiction? No, it is not. I'll tell you at the outset. Peacemaking, beloved, is not to be confused with peacekeeping. You can take the bloods and the crypts, Uh, A friend of mine who's now a Christian and he's a pastor um, led the Crips of Long Beach for years. And he has these letters of um, meritorious uh, work in the community um, from the governor where he, at a time, got together with the uh, leaders of the Bloods and all the other leaders of the Crips to let's lay down our weapons and let's clean up the community for two weeks. Is that peacemaking? No, that's called peacekeeping. There's still hostility in the heart. You lay down your weapons, there's still war. Now it's called a cold war. Peacekeeping is not peacemaking. You see, this is not the peace here. When Jesus says this in chapter 10 of Matthew's account, uh, this doesn't say, you know, whatever you you believe in is is okay as long as we can all just get together and get along. Didn't Rodney King say, can't we just all get along? You know, in order to keep family stress at a minimum, it's peace at all costs. You see, the only way of peace is the acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is the only name given under heaven by which man must be what? Saved. That message doesn't go over well with most. That's a message of peace that actually produces more hostility, more division. It's division between those who embrace Christ and those who will reject Christ as being the only way of salvation. I mean, isn't isn't it interesting that the world does not think of Christians as being peacemakers? (laughs) Not at all. In fact, more often than not, the world says, you Christians are divisive. (laughs) You Christians claim that this Jesus is the only way. How dare you? That's not a very loving message. You arrogantly claim that the God you worship is the one true God. That is divisive. You're bringing about trouble in our little, in our little society. That's the sword that Jesus is talking about. But that sword brings peace, doesn't it? That's a war that brings peace. That is a war that makes peace the sword of Jesus Christ. 
So Jesus bringing a sword, beloved, is no contradiction whatsoever. The problem is that man is reluctant to accept his terms of peace. (laughs) For which he established in the first place. He established the terms, he fulfilled the terms, and then he offers the terms as the only acceptable way. That's offensive. So the peace that was established between man and God did not come about by peaceful means, did it? But rather by way of a cruel and violent cross where he bore the wrath of the Father in order to make peace between sinners like you, sinners like me, and his holy, righteous Father. That's it. That's the message of reconciliation. That's the message of a peacemaker. Not all roads lead to God, amen. There's one way. It's straight and it's narrow. And when you, as going out to make reconciliation between lost man and holy God, will not be received very well. Unless he is at work within that individual already. That's why prayer is essential in preaching the gospel. So unconditional surrender to his way is not the option that sinful man wants to hear. The only means of righteousness to stand right before God is Jesus Christ in my place. Is that what you're telling me? That's right. I refuse to accept that. So therefore, verse 10, the message of peace with God is an offense to man, and therefore these peacemakers become recipients of persecution which we'll look at next week. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Who's righteous? Jesus Christ. So those who have peace with God, beloved, can't secretly remain silent about it for too long. It's an awareness that that this awesome thing that we have come to realize needs to be shared with guilty Sinners, knowing that we were once guilty but are no longer condemned. Blessed are the peacemakers. They know the peace of God in Christ and they want others to share in the peace. And notice, what are they called? Sons of God. How are they called sons of God? Well, because they describe or they emulate the very nature of God, the character of God. Desiring to see these two parties reconciled. Why? Because the love of God has been shed abroad in their hearts by the Holy Spirit that's been given to them. Romans 5.5 5. Because our hearts have been turned. We no longer have hatred towards our fellow man. We know what it was to be there. We desire to see them reconciled. That they might experience the mercy of God and the bounty of of Almighty God. Now, we all fail in our evangelism times, amen? Anybody besides me? (laughs) Anybody? You blow opportunity here, you blow opportunity there, so we go back to prayer and we pray, Lord, ready me for any opportunity to be an ambassador that rightly represents you by the grace that I need and the power I need to declare this truth, whatever the outcome is, amen? You need that grace 
every single day to be able to proclaim this message, which indeed, at the end of the day, does divide. We are sons of God. We want to see people experience this. And it begins with prayer. We see the heart of God in Ezekiel. That he does not delight in the destruction of the wicked, but he delights when sinners are turned and converted to him. We share in this. These are the sons of God. A people characterized by the traits of their father. Just as you look at a young boy around here, you can say, boy, he is definitely his father's son. We want to reflect the character of our heavenly father. Peacemakers. Those who go about telling the message of reconciliation and peace with God. Now, as members of the household of faith, as members of the Lord Jesus Christ's church, beloved, our peacemaking doesn't end with gospel declaration. We are ambassadors not only to the world, beloved, but also to one another. Amen? Peacemaking extends to all other kinds of reconciliation, even within the body of Christ. Because as sons and daughters of God, we delight in peace wherever possible. Rather than delighting in bitterness. Rather than delighting in division. Rather than dividing in in strife. Rather than than delighting in in gossip or or slander or trivial-mindedness. We delight in peace. And peacemaking from, from brother A to brother B and sister D to sister E. To reconcile them. You know, within the church, beloved... There ought to be a sweet aroma of peace. A sweet aroma of peacefulness amongst God's people. God accomplished this peace for us in our redemption. You know, one of the greatest indictments against the church is Christian bickering, Christian bitterness, Christian backbiting, Christian fighting, Christian division. It's an indictment against the bride of Christ that the world is constantly pointing their finger towards. So another responsibility, beloved, of a peacemaker is to help reconcile the family of God to one another. And did you know that where there is uh, strife without reconciliation, God doesn't receive the worship of those that are his? Jesus said, same chapter, Matthew 5, verse 23, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. When we look at Titus 3 and verse 1, it's kind of a commentary of what it means to be a peacemaker within the body of Christ. Look at this, verse 1, Titus 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Ephesians 4, to the church. 
Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You say, I try, but you do not know this person. This person is bent on being contentious, and as a matter of fact, they're never satisfied unless they're bickering with somebody. And you know what I say to that? You're absolutely right. There's some people that are like that. Some people are almost impossible to get along with, even within the body of Christ. That is burdensome. They love gossip. They love strife. They love to fight. That's why we are given Romans 12. In verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Notice there's two qualifiers in that verse. (laughs) Did you notice? If it's possible, and so far as it depends upon you, you do all that it takes to make peace with that brother, with that sister, or make peace between that brother and that brother, or that sister and that sister. Listen to the words of A.W. Pink. Man, I love A.W. Pink more and more every day. I just read a biography on him. And... uh, It's just a delight. Listen to what he says. Quote, To be a lover of and worker after peace is one of the distinguishing marks of those who are followers of the Prince of Peace. In each relationship they occupy, domestic, social, ecclesiastical, it is their desire and endeavor to prevent and relieve strife. They're lovers of concord, promoters of unity, healers of breaches. They delight to pour oil on troubled waters, to reconcile those who are estranged, to right wrongs, to strengthen the kindly ties of friendship. As the sons of peace, they bring into the fetid atmosphere of this world a breath from the pure and placid air of heaven. Fetid means stench. They bring into the stench atmosphere of this world a breath from the pure and placid air of heaven. How much the world is indebted to their presence, only the day to come will show. End quote. You see, this is a holy and pure kind of peace that has to do with a right relation to God that is peaceable. But you see, being peaceable comes from purity. And purity and peacefulness are linked together in Scripture. Listen to James 3. Wisdom from above is first what? Pure. Then peaceable. Gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So this is a pure and authentic peace that's free in the context of James from quarrelsome attitudes. These are Christian virtues that characterize the church that are marked by peace and cooperation rather than strife and competition. Hebrews 12, verse 14, to the believers. Strive for what? Peace. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So peacefulness then is a kind of holiness. It's a kind of purity that that comes out from the believer, you see. This is God's work of sanctification in all of us, is it not? A work for which we are active by faith, not idle. We're engaged. We're involved. 
So there then, beloved, are two aspects of peace in being a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. They take out the message of peace, of the Prince of Peace, to a lost and dying world, and they are involved and engaged with making peace amongst the brethren. So question, what is our attitude toward an unbelieving world? Do we look at them and detest them? Do we go figure? The world does what they do because they know no better, amen? We used to do what we do because we knew no better. It took the transforming power of God to change you and to change me. Without which you would be the same. We have a message of hope. We have a a message of peace. Do we see this as an urgency to take this message out? That these people can receive the same forgiveness that we've received in Jesus Christ. And no, beloved, having an urgency does not detract from the sovereignty of God and salvation. Amen? You can have an urgency within you to declare this truth and still entrust yourself completely to the sovereign framework of Almighty God that says, whoever's going to be saved will indeed be saved. And we say amen to that. But we're a means to his end. A means to his end. So has God's love for us, beloved, impacted us in such a way that this is our driving desire to be a peacemaker to a lost and dying world? To see the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ consume those who are yet unredeemed at this point among us and around us? Do we see the lost as being at war with God and they don't realize that they're in the midst of a heated battle? Then we have the message of peace. We must remember at the same time that this is a divisive message. And you will be persecuted for this message of peace. How about relationally? Within the church, beloved, are we, are we peacemakers or are we warmongers? Do we love strife? Do we, do we thrive on Controversy? Do we stir up and sow seeds of discord into the hearts of other people that produce within them disdain or hatred for a brother? That's not being a peacemaker. Are you one of those people who aren't satisfied unless you're involved in some kind of dispute with your neighbor, one of your family members, or God forbid, the church of Jesus Christ? May we never be. Now, you take that spirit of dispute, you take that, that cult of controversy and you add uh, reformed Calvinistic theology to it and you have a whole new battlefield in which more mongering is produced. May we not be such, beloved. Right? Because here we sit with our Calvinistic theology in place, which is solid biblical theology, and we rejoice in that. And However, if we're not careful, we will prove to to be those who have the propensity for thriving on matters of theological debate that don't end there, but they often lead into interpersonal attacks. May we not be such. Rejoice that God has granted you the the ability to see the sovereign framework of His grace. 
Don't use it to look for a fight. Because then it becomes interpersonal. And then we're in sin. Because there's disunity in the body. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So we must ask ourselves this morning as I close. In the area of my own personal life, this is you speaking, this is me speaking, in the areas of my own personal life where there is strife, am I the cause? Am I the cause of this strife? Am I a warmonger? Am I a gossip? Now, if on the other hand, I'm not the cause, have I done everything within my power to resolve the problem? See, beloved, if you reach out to repair damage between you and someone else or two other parties, all you can do is what you can do. If you go to someone and say, look, I feel as though there's tension between us. Have I done anything at all to offend you, brother? Have I done anything to offend you, sister? And if they say, uh, no. (laughs) Why do you ask? Well, because you're always really sharp with me. Every time I talk to you, you can only do what you can do. I don't know how many times over like 20 years that I know that someone had a problem with me. Didn't know what it was, so I asked them. If you ask them and they don't tell you, that's all you can do. There have been those who have, you know what, I do have a problem with you, and it's because you did this or you said this. Then you can say, wow. Either I didn't know that I offended you, please forgive me, and you move on, or you know what, I did mean to offend you, and I did offend you, and I repent. Ten years ago, I was getting ready to preach in front of like 3,000 people. And I had a dispute with another pastor that day. And I left to go make it right with the brother. Because the dispute happened about an hour prior to that. So I was sitting in the chair getting ready to step up to preach, and I walked out to go make it right because I was overwhelmed with, with guilt. I had to make it right. And it was my fault. I offended him. I I got in his business. So you can only do what you can do. If possible, so much as depends upon what you do with you, be at peace with everyone. Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Because you see, beloved, he who spared not his son but freely gave him over in order to make peace with his enemies, said, Father, what? Forgive them. They know not what they do. Providing peace by the blood of his cross in absolute absolute humility, God is a man hanging there for you. So should we then Respond with anything less than a humble attempt at peacemaking here and now. Let us be such people, amen? Let's pray. Father, we adore you. We thank you 
We praise you for the peace that has been established between us and the Father. Lord, we are well aware that we deserve to be condemned. We deserve the wrath of hell. But you have pitied us. You have shown us love. You have shown us mercy. You have provided the terms of peace in offering your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. So may we, Lord, by grace, as the recipients of peace, become greater and more powerful peacemakers. Lord, may we declare this truth with clarity, with humility, but yet with Holy Spirit power to those friends and family members of ours that are lost, knowing all along that you are the sword of division. May you break down those walls. And may every person in here, including myself, be able to experience the power of that gospel proclamation and seeing it destroy the walls of separation and to see new life birthed into the hearts and lives of those that are at this point lost, that they may have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive the peace provided that which we share in this morning. And Lord, protect us from ourselves at the same time. May we not only be peacemakers to a lost and dying world, but also peacemakers within the body of Christ, within your church. May we be such people. May we listen twice as much as we speak. May we hold our tongue. May we love as we're called to love, so that the world might know us by the love we have for one another. As peacemakers, the Prince of Peace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand again, beloved, and sing the church's one foundation.